Some of you may know that one of my only claims to fame is that I have never lost a three-legged race. You know the old community picnic, church picnic game. You get together with a partner with two legs tied together and put your arms around each other and, and you try to race together. Now at this point, it appears that I will be able to leave Ellerslie with my reputation intact. Well, at least as three-legged races go. A three-legged race is not an, as easy as it looks, but long ago I stumbled onto what it takes to keep from stumbling in a three-legged race. When I was a kid, the three-legged race was one of the games at the church picnic. We got points for where we placed in each of the games, and, and there was a prize at the end. I know, it's old school. Winning wasn't everything. It was all about having fun. But boy, is winning fun. But they have activities that were designed to make those who normally won not win. But for whatever reason, the three-legged race was the last race of the picnic. And so it was often the event that determined who would be the church picnic champion. Early in my career, I found the winning partner, Ken. Ken and I were not best friends. Although we were only four months apart in age, we lived in the same rural neighborhood, went to the same church, and our parents were friends. But because my birthday was in toward the end of the year, and his was in January, he was a grade behind me, and that makes all the difference in elementary school. But on church picnic Saturday, we were inseparable. You see, Ken was a fast runner, and I was quite a fast runner, and every year at the church picnic, Ken and I decided that rather than compete against each other, in the three-legged race, we would cooperate with each other and both be winners. Within two years of us making our pact, it became a foregone conclusion who would win the race. We would win by, well, we could sometimes cross the finish line, turn around, and have the ties off as the next team crossed the line, because Ken and I had figured it out. There was only really one major reconciler or noticeable difference between Ken and I, and it was a difference that made the difference. It, it wasn't the fact that he was four months younger. It was that Ken was a good four to six inches shorter than I was. After the race one year, one of the adults who was witnessing the, this event for the first time laughingly said, Mel just put his arms around him, picks him up by the armpits, and runs. Well, it wasn't quite that simple. I was skinny. I couldn't do that. But she was on to something. Over the years, we had figured out that the two keys to winning a three-legged race, and with these two secrets, this pastor has made winners out of a lot of kids at church picnic. Number one, you don't tie the tie around the ankles. Everybody ties the tie around the ankles. Not good enough. You have to tie the tie higher up at the knees. You'll only run together if your entire legs are in sync. And number two, it's all about the first step. The tied legs have to, have to start behind, so they're taking the first step together, and you have to decide ahead of time who will be taking the lead in the first step. It just works best if it's the taller one. So at a church picnic, I just pick the smallest, youngest kid to be my partner, and the last thing I say is, let me take the first step, okay? You win a three-legged race in the first three steps. Start slow, 
get a rhythm, one guy leads, and you've won. Our life with God is a race. The Psalms, the prophets, Paul three times, all compare our journey with God to a race. Not a race against other people, but a competition, mostly with ourselves, to stay on track, to reach the goal. Sometimes, for a period of time, it's a sprint. Often, most often, it's a series of sprints. Sometimes it's more like a marathon. And sometimes it's simply a long, slow, steady, uphill hike. But it is a race. The Psalms, the prophets, Paul. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, probably summarizes it best. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. For some of us, too often it becomes a purposeless race because all we're doing is running from something or running against somebody else. For some of us, it's purposeful. We are goal-oriented and we have our goals, but there are goals. But at some time, if we're going to run well, we have to realize that it's just not about what we're running from and running to the big deal is who we're running with. The real race question most often is, are you running with God? Am I running well with God? We're working our way through the life of a man who is held high in the story God is writing as an example, an example of one who learned to run well with God, an example of one who learned often from failure that well, as we saw last week, running with God does not mean taking the lead and telling God what we need from Him, using God to achieve my goals, fulfill my needs. That's putting the tie around the ankles. It's not about what we need from God. It's about realizing that we simply need God. And today we'll see that running with God is not just about a let's hang out, just let it flow smooth life. It wasn't for David. And it won't be for us. Turn in your Bibles or your Bible app on your smartphone, or if you're on the online platform resource, on the right side of the screen is a Bible section. You can turn to 1 Samuel in the Older Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 23. I love this chapter. Recently, one of our staff was asking everyone he met that day the question, what's your favorite story in the Bible? When he asked me, I thought, and I thought, and I said, my favorite story in the Bible is whatever story I'm reading that week. And, and that's certainly true this week. It's, it's my current favorite. David has met God, not in church, but in a cave at the bottom. And in that cave and from that cave, God provides for David what, what he, not what he thinks he needs, but what he really needs for the long haul. David is back to a healthy running with God posture. Now, for David, this time of running with God, has a huge running from thread to it for at least 10 more years from when David comes out of the cave. He will be running from a mentally unstable, narcissistic King Saul who is doing everything he can to liberate himself and the world from this man whom God has appointed and anointed to take over from him. David is on the run in the wilderness from Saul. 
and from all of the resources Saul has at his disposal as king to seek and to kill. He is running from Saul, but at the very beginning of this long time of running from Saul, God allows David several experiences so that David will see that this is not just about running from Saul. It's all about running with God. Psalm 23, let's start at verse 1. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing force, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack the Philistines? <laughs> okay, David is back on track. He knows Saul is after him. He knows Saul will not be dissatisfied until he's eliminated. But what is David's focus? David is focused not on himself, on his needs, on his safety, but on the mission. Not God's mission for me, but to the needs of the people King Saul should have been concerned about. Keilah is a small city on the edge of Philistine land. It's a walled city, so the Philistine army can't get inside. But the walls of the city are, are just around the living area and probably the daily commerce area. However, the threshing floors, where the harvested grain is taken from the fields to be processed, and in most cases to be stored like a granary, the threshing floors are outside the city. The Philistines can swoop in and get for nothing what the Israelites have done the work for. And the people of Keilah lose income, and they lose their food. This is, this is like a mini siege. Can you see what's happening? The Philistines, who became afraid of Israel because their champion, Goliath, has been defeated, are no longer afraid of Israel. They know there's disunity at the top. People are being forced to take sides, Saul or David. And Saul's focus is on getting rid of David taking care of himself, preserving his status. He's not focused on the mission. He's not focused on the people. And David has been in the cave hiding with his own problems. And as we saw last week, David realizes that his own behavior has contributed to the problem. But because David has a heart for God, as he gets back to, running with, uh, to a running with God posture, he, he takes his eyes off himself, his, his, his needs from God, and he focuses on the mission of God. There are all kinds of things that can take our eyes off the mission of God. Sometimes it's, it's outright conflict between people. Sometimes it's conflict in our marriage and in team members. Sometimes it's just a long, long, dry spell, like COVID time. But a sign that we've done cave time with God well and have started running with God again is that we begin to recognize that God is bigger even than even this situation, and you're once again trying or tying yourself to God tighter, perhaps higher than you have been, perhaps just faithfully and consistently taking on the mission. And you begin to see ways you've been making it about you. And, and, and you'll start asking the question, how can I flip the game in my mind? How can I use this time to serve someone else in God's name? David is back on track with the mission. He's starting to run with God well. But, but David does not want to presume on God. He wants to run with God. And so, verse 2, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? 
The Lord answered him, that's my man, that's my man. Go attack the Philistines and save Keilah, my people. Now, if you've been with us on this journey so far, you'll realize immediately the major pivot that David is making. Back in chapter 21, as he starts running from Saul in panic and desperation, Dave goes, David goes to the priest to tell him what he needs from God. It ends up being a disaster for David, for the priest Ahimelech and his entire family. But David has learned his lesson big time. David inquired of the Lord. He's moved from telling God what he needs to asking God what to do. That becomes a key theme in this chapter. Verse 4, we read, once again, David inquired of the Lord. Verses 9 to 11, David is asking God again and again. David is not taking one step without consulting God, getting directions from God. This is a new David because David knows that to run with God means to let God take the lead. And letting God lead means asking God, being willing to submit to God. Now, we're going to spend a bit of time on this one. This is a very easy one to misunderstand and, and to misuse. It's easy to read this and to say, well, what we need to realize is that we, we just need to spend some time praying about it, right? That's what some of us are hearing. But when the text says that David inquired of the Lord, it's not saying he just prayed about it. By the way, never does the Bible say just pray about it. There's no just to praying about it, okay? Now, just a warning. At the risk of being misunderstood, I am going to push into this a little further than some of us are comfortable, maybe, into territory that we might react to. But rather than reacting, disagreeing, and, and writing it off, I'd like us to reflect on it over time. You see, as a pastor for many years now, there's a line that becomes a big red flag, well, at least a yellow flag for me. When I hear it, I have to work very, very, very hard at my body language and my tone of voice when I speak. The line is this. Pastor, I've, I've prayed about this. And it's almost to the point when I hear that line, I don't even hear what follows it. I'm thinking, okay, where is it going this time? If I was going to start my pastoral career over again, I think I would seriously consider doing a formal research project, documenting every single time someone either began a discussion with that line, I've prayed about it, or at a crucial point in the discussion, used that line. I've prayed about this. And just record what percent of the time it resulted in escalating the angst in the room, heightening the tension, rather than being a step in resolving the tension and the issue. Now, do I not think that we need to pray more fervently and regularly and sincerely? Absolutely. And I've been part of some very intense discussions with groups of people where at a certain point we took a tea, a timeout of stopping, praying together, which became the catalyst to a powerful breakthrough. But friends, we need to realize that we all go to God, like David did back in chapter 21, with hearts that are much less pure than we realize. And it's so easy to get the wires crossed between what our self-centered and self-referenced hearts are saying and what God might be saying. Now, this is anecdotal, but 
It's not formally researched, but let me just throw out two things that people just might feel when you say, I prayed about it. Some people might feel like this is a power play, a, a spiritualized control tactic. Don't even take me on. I talk to God so I know I'm right. We use prayer as a, a lever with people to get our way, subtly putting ourselves and our perspective above other people rather than putting other people above ourselves. Another thing that people feel, especially in a church context or sometimes in a marriage context or any group that wants to be centered on God, sometimes they feel that we're using that line as a stalling technique. I remember being in a very pivotal church business meeting once in which we were seeking unity on a major mission-critical strategic decision. We had spent a year praying about it, listening to people, strategizing, and recognizing that we had to choose one of two directions, and there were people strongly on both sides of those directions. We had three meetings with members, with anybody in the church body who wanted to come in the space of six weeks, talking about it, refining the proposal a bit, and when it came time for the meeting at which the vote was taken, one person got up and said, I've been praying about it, and and this word picture came to me, and very articulately, he painted a picture of driving too fast in a winter snowstorm, not just because it was slippery, but it was too fast because you couldn't see well in the snow. And he ended it up with this closer. We're overdriving our headlights. We need to pray about it some more. The vote was taken, decision passed. And one of the wiser leaders in the church, who happened to be a friend of this guy, went to talk to this man after the meeting and said, you know, brother, I've been thinking about overdriving headlights. Sometimes, especially when it's an older vehicle, the better solution is to get different headlights. Well, when David inquires of God, he gets the same response. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah? against the Philistine forces. We're overdriving our headlights, David. Saving Keilah might be the right thing to do, but the timing is wrong. Can't we just deal with one thing at a time? You don't just get out of one fear-inducing disaster and go into another one. This is crazy. Well, David does the whole process again, and he gets the same result. Verse 4, once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. And now we come to a statement that tells us that when David inquires of the Lord, it's not simply praying about it. It's even more than praying more about it. It tells us in verse 6 what it means to inquire of the Lord. In inquiring the Lord was, was quite a formal process, actually, in God's Old Testament story. In verse 6, the, 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 uh, the, the NIV translation, the New International Version translation, it's in brackets. It almost gives the impression that it's, that it's incidental to the story, a, a line that adds a bit of color to the narrative, but, but this is not an incidental line. As scholars who have studied the structure of this chapter point out, the statement in verse 6 is the key line in the entire chapter. Verse 6, 
Now, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, the priest, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. In both of the high-stakes scenes in this chapter, as David goes to God for guidance, for direction, for discernment, for wisdom, it's the ephod through which guidance comes. What's an ephod? Well, the ephod was, was part of the, the vestments that the priest wore when he was on duty. It was, it was attached to his fancy breastplate. It was, it was probably a removable pouch in which were two items. Perhaps they were two stones or two sticks, maybe. We're not sure. And these two items were used, actually quite rarely, it seems, in order to make major mission-critical decisions where praying about it was not enough. It appears they were, they were mostly binary, yes or no decisions. These two items were called the Urim and the Thummim. It may have been something as simple as, as dice-looking stones with, with different colored surfaces on each, on, on both of them. Black, some surfaces, white, some surfaces. And perhaps something like when you rolled them, both of them white meant yes. Both of them black means no. And one white, one black means, well, go pray some more, maybe. But, but here's the point. David is not just praying to God about it by himself. David is going to someone else, to God's priest, through whom God's advice and direction is to come, not just for advice, not just for counsel, not just to pray about it, but to make the decision for him. He's submitting himself to God's will through a process that takes David's mind, David's heart, David's feelings out of the picture. So to inquire of the Lord, even for God's leader, is a, is a communal thing. It's not just me and God. It, it involves an independent understanding God's will through God's word, not just a friend who, who shares my concerns. And who is the priest to whom David is coming? It's Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, the priest to whom David came last time and demanded from God, who was killed because of David's decision. This is a high-stakes gambit for both Abiathar and for David. We can't imagine the tension for both David and Abiathar. So what does that mean for us today? Well, there's, there's no mechanistic tool we have, but inquiring of the Lord means, first of all, knowing, living in, living out God's Word, submitting to God's Word in everything. It seems that, that these uh, Urim and Thummim were, were used very shortly, and, and it's prophets with God's Word that began to take over the role of the Urim and Thummim. If you want to be a person who's running with God, tied to God at a higher up level and letting him lead, it means regularly listening to God's word being taught and asking, hmm, is there anything that was said today that speaks to anything I might be processing or should be processing right now? To know God's direction most often involves wrestling through over time, a long time, God's general guidance that is found in his word. I've sat through an awful lot of church services and a lot of awful church services, a lot of good ones too, but I will tell you that it's been a very, very rare time, maybe a handful, when I have not come away saying, you know what, 
That was a little tidbit from God that I needed to hear today. God reminds you in His Word of His plan. God will never say yes to you about something that is contrary to His plan for everyone. Are you running with God? Focusing on the mission of God, even then the hurts of life are nipping at your heels. Learning to truly inquire of the Lord and not just use God language well. So, what happens to David when he inquires of the Lord and gets God's wisdom? Does life get easier? Well, it actually gets more difficult, more complex, more challenging. Verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, Woo! God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Saul uses God language well. The more David wins, the worse Saul gets. David is doing the work that Saul should be doing, but all Saul sees is, yes, David just walked into a trap. Couldn't get him in the wilderness. Piece of cake here. Instead of being pumped about God's victory through David over, uh, over the real enemy, Saul is pumped that David has let his guard down and made a tactical error. And he gets his whole army together to go after one man. This is real life Jason Bourne, friends, better than the movies or the books. But David does not let his guard down. David, once again, inquires of the Lord. Verse 9, when David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, yeah, they will. Are you kidding me? David has just rescued, saved the people of Keilah. He can't count on the people who he has just rescued because they are more afraid of Saul than they are loyal to David. And they're willing to surrender their deliverer to Saul. As one commentator says, Saul may appear to have the upper hand politically, but David has God's guidance. Let's step, skip down a few verses to, to down to verse 19. Get to the next or another scene. David has escaped from Saul. He's, he's back in the wilderness. And here's the other major scene in the chapter. An encounter with another group of people over whom he will become king, the Ziphites. All you need to know about the Ziphites is that they were people from the tribe of Judah. Who is from the tribe of Judah? David is from the tribe of Judah. The Ziphites are David's peeps. Surely David's own people will stand up for him, will take his side. What happens? Verse 19, the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakilah south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we 
will, will be responsible for giving him into your hands. David's own people won't stand up for him. And Saul uses God language once again to keep them on his side. Verse 21, Saul replied, Oh, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more, more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he's in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out, went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. What? First, the people David has served and rescued won't lift a finger to even warn him. And now David's own people take the initiative in betraying him. You know, it'd be easy to look at this, look at this from our own experience, and say, I get the lesson, don't ever trust people. Well, that would be the negative way of looking at it. And it would keep us from running with God well. How about we just change that a little bit? To learn with, to run with God well is to trust God more than people. And the only time you can learn how to do that, to learn how to tie the tie higher, is at the time when people fail you. We've talked before that in most things, as, as we live prayerfully about everything in line with God's word, in everything in most situations, decisions are simply a matter of applying the wisdom we have from God. That's what Proverbs is all about, the books of wisdom, the wisdom way. And what does James say? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who, who gives liberally. I've, I've referred to that before, but I'll, I'll never forget the aha moment. As a younger pastor, I was teaching through the book of James, and after we went through this passage in the first chapter where it talks about God giving wisdom, someone came to me and said, oh, thanks so much, Mel. I'm in this situation, and I've asked God for wisdom, and he gave me the answer I've been praying about. God told me to do this. And I thought, really? That's not God's wisdom? And I'm getting blamed for it. And then very shortly, having someone else say to me, you know what? I've asked God for wisdom, and I just can't seem to get an answer. And suddenly it dawned on me. What are we to expect from God as we ask for wisdom? Are we to expect an answer as to what to do? No. We're to expect that he'll give us wisdom to make a decision. And that wisdom will not be contrary to the wisdom we have in here. It won't. It was many years later, a lot of life later, that I realized what else it is that God does, that God most often gives when we ask for wisdom. It's right, it's right there in James 1, and I didn't, didn't see it. When we want wisdom, what does God give? He gives a challenge. He gives a difficult circumstance. He gives a wilderness. 
Let's go back to the little scene in the middle of the chapter that we missed in um, chapter 23. We didn't miss it because David talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We missed it because it's now time to know the point. Verse 16. <laughs> Interesting, Saul can't find David, but Jonathan can. Saul's son, Jonathan can. Isn't that amazing? And verse 16, Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. What does Jonathan do? Jonathan helped David find his strength, literally strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan helped David Pull that tie tighter between him and God. Pull it a little higher up. You know, we often say, I think the devil is attacking me. I, I never know how to answer that. Maybe he is and maybe he isn't, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point is that to run with God well, he will take you into a wilderness and he will give you situations in which the only thing you can do is to pull the tie up higher or, or to change the image. You'll only go deep in God, run with God well as you allow Him to lead you through deep water. And in that deep water, taking your eyes off yourself and your needs and your rights and focus on how you can strengthen others' hands in God, learning to wait on God, go deeper, broader into getting help from others about what God might be doing, learning to trust God more than people so you can maintain a healthy attitude to God, you will learn to run well in the wisdom of God. There's one more thing that ties this chapter together. This chapter and the next, as we'll see next week, is tied together by the idea of but being delivered into someone's hands. Saul, verse 7, gotcha, God has delivered David into my hands. Verse 14, day after day, Saul pursued David, but God did not give David into his hands. Verse 16, Jonathan strengthened David's hands. In God. The Ziphite said, We will be responsible for giving him into your hands. But it won't happen because David is in God's hands. And nothing can touch the real you when you are in God's hands. And, and we know, even more than David, that that is a reality. Because one day, many generations later, one who came out of the line of David, who was the greater David, said to his father while hanging on the cross his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And it's when God takes you into a wilderness, abandoned by people, attacked by people, that he's taking you to the place where he wants you to hear again. 
his voice, the voice of Jesus saying, my sheep listen to my voice. Not to their hearts, not to other people's praise or people's criticism. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. They run with me. And in listening to my voice and following me, what will they come to hear and to know? That I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one and nothing can take them out of my hands. You see, we are called to take in these elements that declare to us how it is that we have come into God's hands so we can leave this place today tying the tie higher and tighter, letting God lead, knowing that nothing can take me out of God's hands. And it's in the wilderness, it's through the wilderness I get to demonstrate that. Would you take these elements? Take the bread. It says that Jesus gives us this bread. Would you take it from Jesus? And as Jesus says, his body for you. His body for your strength. His body for your protection. His body for your provision. Would you say, yes, Jesus, I receive it from you. His body and his blood shed for you, for your forgiveness, for your freedom, for your oneness and brotherhood with him. He has bought you to be his. Will you say, yes, Jesus, I am yours? It's Super Bowl Sunday. In the glory days of the Green Bay Packers with Vince Lombardi as their coach, there was a game in which they had suffered a lot of injuries and by the end of the first half had scored only a few points. They went into the locker room at halftime and started focusing on their injuries and they complained about the refs and they ran down the other team. And as he came walking into the room overhearing their pity party, Vince Lombardi is quoted as saying, men, you can only win the big games when you learn to play with the little hurts of life. Folks, in light of this, every hurt is a little hurt. Every challenge can take you deeper draw you closer, tie the cord tighter to run well with him. Let's pray. Lord, as we stand before the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, that we fail, we, rec we recognize that we fall so short every day. As we stand in the presence of your body for us, strength for our weakness, 
we recognize that we are way more secure in you than we feel because we are yoked together to you by your covenant. Jesus, thank you for this invitation to come to you again, to tie the rope tighter and higher so we can run well, to run with endurance the race you are granting us to run with you this week, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and playing with the little hurts that come into our life this week. Lord, in you we rest, by you we stand, and with you and for you we run. In Jesus' powerful, wonderful, beautiful name, amen.